the New York Jets just a brutal, brutal week three loss. We thought week one was bad. Week three was even worse. This was one of the worst losses, and you can hear me. I'm sick, and I also I was screaming a lot earlier. I don't have much of a voice, so I apologize for that. But we're going to begin with the Jets, as you were just talking about, Dan. We'll get to the Giants as well. Both New York teams, brutal losses today. But we'll start with the Jets, as you just said. Jets lose 24-3. to You look at the game, 24-3, to it looks like they got blown out. This was not a blowout. This was a this was a debacle, and it was a debacle on so many levels for the New York Jets. We today. have we have so many different things we can I, say. I just I can't believe what I watched. I I can't believe it. It starts with the quarterback, and that's where we begin. We could talk about the defense not getting off the field on third down. We could talk about the different turnovers outside of Fitzpatrick, but at the end of the day. The starting quarterback is the most responsible. And this was the worst performance out of any quarterback I have ever seen in a long time. It was easily the worst performance in my lifetime I've ever seen a Jet quarterback have. For Ryan Fitzpatrick to have six interceptions. Not one, not two, not three, six. not four, not five, but six. Inter- it, it's mind-boggling After that an NFL quarterback coming off of picks. the game of his life against the Bills last Thursday. Mind-boggling. And the fact that this Jets team, at the time down 17-3, to had first and goal from the 5 and the 6 yard line and both of those drives ended in an interception in the end zone. Tipped interceptions. Just mind-numbing, mind-boggling and as a Jet fan who's seen it all this was one of the worst losses I have ever seen. The Jets should have won this game today going away. Their defense allowed 10 points and Fitzpatrick who was so great last Thursday played the worst game I've ever seen a quarterback play in the history of my lifetime. Pathetic. It was pathetic. pathetic. And you know what? The thing is, is they had opportunities today. Down 17-3 with everything that happened, they got such a break on the touchdown that got reversed and called a, a touchback because after the running back, I think it was Ward, dove and, and fumbled the ball into the end zone, which was the right call. He lost control of it as he was crossing the, the plane. It was a fumble and a touchback. The Jets had a golden opportunity to go down the field and score, and we liked what we saw that drive. We liked what we saw in the Jets' offense. They were moving the ball. Fitz looked for the first time, and really the only time today, confident moving the ball downfield. They get to, you mentioned it, first and goal from the six-yard line. They try to force it into into uh, Eric Decker on first and goal. Incomplete. Almost intercepted by Eric Berry. Next play, an interception for Eric Berry on a tip pass where they were trying to get it to Jalen Marshall. Why are the New York Jets trying to get Jalen Marshall the ball in the red zone? The, the only two guys in the receiving core, I'll give you three guys, that should be getting the ball as a target in the end zone is Brandon Marshall Eric Decker, whose streak today of six um, straight games with a touchdown catch was broken. The Jets didn't even score a touchdown today. Or Quincy Anunwa, not Jalen Marshall, who fumbled a kickoff and gave the Kansas City Chiefs seven points. This game, Dan, and we said this before. I mean, come before. on, Ryan. What is going on? What went on with the Jets' offense today? And you're right. It starts with the quarterback play, but Shane Gailey and the play calling was awful. It was an all-around debacle on the offense. It was. It was a shame. The Jets ran the ball well, and they didn't give the fat Matt Forte nearly enough as they wanted. we wanted them to. What happened was, when you look at this Jets' situation out there, the fact that they only gave up 10 points and lost on the road in Kansas City absolutely disgraceful 
And when you look at this Jets team, there is no margin for error. When you blow week one against the Bengals, a team that you'll likely see in the playoff hunt at the end of the year for a wild card, and then you blow a game against Kansas City, another team that you'll see in the hunt for a wild card, those are two conference losses. And when you're the Jets and you have Seattle next week, then you have Pittsburgh, and then you have Arizona both on the road, your margin for error is so small. And for Fitzpatrick to go out there and play his worst game as a pro, have no command of this offense whatsoever. Those interceptions were backbreakers. And you mentioned the break the Jets got. They couldn't take advantage of it. And it got so predictable that he was going to throw a pick after pick after pick. There was nothing more that could have been said. And my biggest complaint with Ryan Fitzpatrick today was every single time he was throwing these picks, they were intended to the wrong receiver, as you were saying. Where was Eric Decker today? Where was Brandon Marshall? A nun wouldn't get the ball enough. The game plan? Atrocious. And everything about Ryan Fitzpatrick today was just brutal. And it's mind-boggling. I keep using that word because it pains me watching it. It was mind-boggling to me that this was the same quarterback that 10 days prior played the best game of his life on the road in Buffalo against a Rex Ryan defense. This was a bad, bad loss for the Jets. And you can argue that next week's game now against Seattle, just like last week's game against Buffalo, is potentially to save their season when you look at the schedule coming up. This team cannot afford to hand football games away. And you can say whatever you want about the different factors on this team besides Ryan Fitzpatrick, the different players. It falls on him. Six interceptions, you take three of them out and they still might win. That's how badly the Chiefs were, and the Jets let him off the hook. Pathetic. And there were a lot of things you just mentioned to Jake. There were a lot of things that you couldn't look at. The Jalen Marshall fumble on the kickoff. Uh, the fact that the defense couldn't stop uh, Kansas City on the first two jet turnovers and they were resulted in, te- in 10 points. You can blame that. You can look towards that. But you mentioned it. The bottom line is is the blame and the heartbreak for the New York Jets today falls on the quarterback. And it's Ryan Fitzpatrick and six interceptions, eight turnovers for the Jets, but the six INTs by Ryan Fitzpatrick. Just awful. Just awful. And you were wondering at some point, was it time, was it the right time in mid-game to, to make a move and bring in Geno Smith? Was that, was, should that have come to mind to Todd Bowles? It tells you how sad this is, Dan. It got to a point where you and I both looked at each other and said, you got to put in Geno Smith. Well, I can't stand Geno Smith. And we Smith. hate Geno, and we've gone on the record to say we hate Geno. I don't even want Geno on the team, but you know what? If he's suited up as the backup... I'm going to want him to come in when my starting quarterback is throwing interception after interception, and you meant back-breaking interceptions. In the end zone, you can't turn the ball over in the red zone, and the Jets did it twice today. In the in the red zone? In the red zone. How in about the end zone. The Jets had first and goal from the five and the six-yard line, two separate drives down 17-3, and both of those drives ended in interceptions. I mean, this was remarkable. I go back to this game that Fitzpatrick had last week against the Bills. It's hard to imagine that this was the same quarterback. You you know, I thought we were past this, and I have a lot of blame on Todd Bowles. Even before the interceptions started coming in, this Jets offense and this defense at the beginning today, they were not ready to play. I agree. You know, the Jets were up for a tough road test against a good team in the Chiefs, and they went out there, and they didn't come out with 10 days of rest for them to show up and immediately get down 17-3 to at the half. That's disgraceful. We should be past this. If the Jets are serious about being a team that's going to go to the playoffs, you cannot afford to get after those kind of starts, that's where the game was really lost. And in the def- on the defensive side of the ball, while we're talking about the Jets' defense, we talked about it last week. We talked about it throughout this week. 
how the chief strength of dinking and dunking the ball downfield plays into the strength of the Jets' defense, and the Jets couldn't stop Not it. Not if they have Travis Kelsey. I mean, oh. the Chiefs kept running the same kind of dink and dunk screen passes, short passes over the middle. The Jets did a sloppy job in the first half in particular of tackling, of uh, assignments. It was a mess in the first half on defense. They made adjustments. I do give them credit. In the second half, they played a lot better defensively. But you know what? You mentioned it. Ten days of rest. You can't come out against a good Kansas City Chiefs team at Arrowhead, a very tough place to play as a road team, and just come out in the first half so flat, so awful. It's, a, it's really a shame. It, it just, really is a shame. Because the Jets had an opportunity today to steal a win. This was a game that had to find a way to win. They had to. You know, it's too important. And I keep going back to their schedule, but you know what? That's the reality. Now you have to go and face a Seattle team that's coming in hot after they beat the 49ers. Then, of course, Arizona's not a game. I know they lost to the Bills, but that's a game that you're on the road for on, on Monday night. And, of course, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's still an outstanding football team as well. I don't care if they lost to the Eagles today. Those are teams that are not going to be easy to win. Heck, any team the Jets play at this point is not an easy win because now all of a sudden, you know, who is Ryan Fitzpatrick? You know, is he the guy that played as great as he did against the Bills? He's obviously not as bad as he was today, but you know what? I don't know if Ryan Fitzpatrick, in one week I went from believing in this guy that he could be a quarterback good enough to take a team to the playoffs. Now I'm not so sure because he's so inconsistent. I really don't know what to expect from this guy. And it just it bothers me so much that despite all these interceptions, the Jets are right there. And this defense today, people on social media and people I talked to were talking about how they didn't play that well. The first half was rough, but they pitched a shutout in the second half. The Jets' defense was good enough to win today. This loss falls solely on Ryan Fitzpatrick. I'm sorry, it does. And can we talk about for a second, and I know we, we, you know you keep harping on Fitzpatrick, but defensively, Darrell Revis, man, oh man. I mean, today he didn't get burned over the top, but missed tackles. It just looks like he's just not the same physical presence in the tackling game as he was even last year, which is so startling. You know he can't keep up with the quick receivers, the fast receivers that jump off the line of scrimmage downfield. That's one thing. But today, the the poor tackling, specifically in the first half, man, oh, man, where's the fundamentals that we fell in love with with Darrell Revis? It's a really, I mean, it's unbelievable. And, I, you know, I understand he's not that same player that can, stretch, that can guard uh, a top-flight receiver and, and take him completely out of the game, Revis Island. I, I understand that. But open field tackles? Come on, Darrell. I mean, come on. There were a lot of issues today. And it, it, it really, it really it, I mean, everything. It didn't kill him, though. The defense didn't it, it kill didn't him. It didn't kill him, but you know what? The Jets had their issues, obviously, offensively, but defensively as well, too, and in the special teams. Of course. They, they played poorly at some point in the game on all three phases today, but and that's going to set you up. Here's my point on the defense. We can nitpick and pick people apart. Revis had a couple bad plays. Of he course, also had a couple of really good plays. But the thing is, with this Jets team, it really, if they would have won this game today, we'd be talking about how their defense held Kansas City to 10 points. I don't want to spend that much time on this defense. It needs to get better. You're absolutely right. But at the end of the day... Well, it's more frustrating, and I think the more frustrating thing is not that the defense uh, played that poorly, but the fact that they came out in the first quarter, and the they were first brutal. half, of, a, of an important game, and with 10 days rest, after what they did against Buffalo last Thursday night, and came out so flat. Yeah, and despite that, their quarterback could have bailed him out if he played a little bit better. Oh, well, he wasn't bailing anyone I mean, today. eight turnovers is abysmal. I had never seen anything like that in my entire life. The Jets turned the ball over eight times, and for most of the game, they were only down 14 points. 
Yeah. It just, they should have lost by 50. It shows you how bad the Chiefs were, really, today. I mean, honestly, did they do anything that really impressed you? No, I, I think they, they, did, they did exactly what I think we thought they were going to do. Is dink and dunk their way downfield, have long drive. The Jets couldn't get off the field on third down in the first half. And then you know what? When the Jets needed the offense to bail out the defense, and the defense for the Jets has bailed out the offense so many times, specifically over the last two years since Todd Bowles has been here. And they've bailed out that offensive unit. The fact that the, the offense today just couldn't put anything together to put some points on the board really just falls on the quarterback play, and I think Chan Gailey, the offensive coordinator, for having such a terrible game plan going in. The Jets were so predictable offensively, they couldn't get anything going. And listen, you go down 14 points like that, 17 points, whatever it was, just like that, you're going to be taken out of your element. you got to make adjustments, and the Jets just couldn't do it. And it doesn't help, like we talked about, when your quarterback is just had no confidence throwing the ball downfield. I mean, it felt like towards the end of the game, he was going to throw a pick every time he dropped back, and he just about did. He really just about did. It was painful. Six today. of the Jets' drives ended in interceptions. It was just it got it was comedy Come at on. the end. Come on, how do you expect to win at this level? You're not. You're not at any win. level of football. But when my, you turn over the ball eight times. But final point on this before we toss the break. This franchise, they torture you. Some teams are just bad. I know. The Cleveland Browns, they're bad. There are teams in this league, the Jaguars, they're bad. What the Jets do better than any other team in football is they torture you. They're t- yeah, they make course. you think that they can be good. They, You know what? Even when they get killed, they don't really get killed. They keep you in the game just enough where you have to watch the whole thing and get your heart ripped out. And you listen to me talk right now. I am just so annoyed watching this because you know what? I keep going back to this. You look at this roster, they're better than this. Oh, this is a sure. good team. Better, in my opinion, and you know, people can disagree or agree. I think they're better, a, a pretty a better team than the Kansas City Chiefs. I don't think the Kansas City Chiefs are that much better, if at all. They than benefited the New York Jets. from the, one of the worst quarterback performances you will ever see, and that's really what it comes down to. Shame on the Jets, and next week becomes. I don't want to use the must must win a week four. It is, but they can't fall to one and three. It's important. They, it's really if important. Jets, if the Jets want to have a shot at making the playoffs this year. And pushing this team, which was a 10-win team last season, back into the playoffs for the first time since, what, 2010, they have to win next week. They will. Not, I don't think with their start and what they have coming up after next week, they can withstand a 1-3 and three start. I don't think they can do it. they got to win next week. 607-274-1842. We've been teasing it all night so far. Coming up next, the great Bob Costas will join us to talk about the legacy of Vin Scully. It's the Asman and Budic Show. We're on until midnight. We'll be back with Bob Costas right after this. Unflippable, unflappable, unleakable. The Gus Buster is the only umbrella that won't flip inside out, rip, tear, or leak. Capable of withstanding winds over 55 miles per hour. All of our umbrellas are constructed of the finest quality materials and backed by a limited lifetime guarantee. What are you waiting for? Visit GusBuster.com and get your GusBuster today. Welcome back to the Asman and Budick Show. Jake Asman alongside Dan Budick. Well, the big story around baseball is the retirement of the legendary Dodgers broadcaster, Vin Scully. And now joining us on the phone to discuss Vin Scully is a man I got a chance to work with down in Rio this summer, and that's the great Bob Costas. Bob, thanks so much for coming on. How's everything been with you since you returned home from the games? 
Not too bad. Actually, pretty busy. Within a week of returning from Rio, I did a couple of baseball games in Chicago at Wrigley Field for the Baseball Network. Then the next week, the football season opened on NBC, and I did the opener in Denver, and then the first Sunday night game in Arizona. So uh, right back into it, but it beats having a real job, as you know. (laughs) Bob, before we get into Vin Scully, now that you've had some time to reflect on this past Olympic Games, what do you think the Rio 2016 Olympics will be remembered for most? Well, in America, I think it'll be remembered for the spectacular athletic performances, the wind-ups of the career of Michael Phelps and Usain Bolt, the emergence of Simone Biles, uh, the continued excellence, even though they didn't get gold, of Kerry Walsh Jennings with her new partner, April Ross. Uh, I think everyone will remember the Brazilian soccer team because they did it on home turf in such dramatic fashion, and it's the sport that's most important to the host nation. I think that's what Americans will remember by and large. I think the Ryan Lochte incident, um, which now appears to have some gray areas, it wasn't exactly the way he first described it, but neither was it completely false. Something did happen there where there might have been fault on both sides, but I think ultimately that winds up as a footnote. People will remember uh, Copacabana Beach. They'll remember the beauty of the Christ the Redeemer statue, because after all, what television does is it shows you uh, the most uplifting and the most appealing aspects of an Olympics and um, an Olympic host city. What it will be remembered for in Rio remains to be seen. They're probably going to be stuck with some debt. And if you live in a favela, I don't know that your life has been affected one way or the other, be it positive or negative. Uh, by the presence of of the Olympics. I'm I'm not in a position to analyze that, but for American television viewers, I think that they were pleasantly surprised that there were no incidents that got in the way, and they got to see so many appealing athletic performances. Bob, Michael Phelps has told you several times that Rio 2016 was it for him. What's your take on that? Was Rio the final destination for Phelps, or can you see him in Tokyo in four years? I I do think it is. Is there always a 1% chance that... Between now and Tokyo, he gets the bug, and being such a remarkable athlete, he probably could come back and with a somewhat limited program still be not only competitive but maybe win. But he has reached a a different point in his life. He's dealt with some of his personal problems, um, and he's now engaged to be married, and he has a son, and I truly believe that he fully intends to move on. We're joined by NBC Sports' Bob Casas. Bob, switching to baseball, only 10 days left in the Major League Baseball season and only 10 days left in the legendary career of Dodgers broadcaster Vin Scully. Bob, how should we remember Vin as a broadcaster? Well, first of all, the sheer excellence of his broadcasting over a remarkable period of time, over nearly 70 years, which spans so much of baseball history. Um, I mentioned the other day uh, with Conan O'Brien that literally there had to have been players active in 1950 when Vin broke in under Red Barber with the Brooklyn Dodgers. There had to have been players active who had played in the 1930s. And there will be players who broke in this year or last year who will still be playing in the 2030s. So he will be connected literally to players separated by a century. He will have called games in which players whose careers are separated by a century have played. So I don't know of any individual who is as connected to as much of the history of the game as Vin Scully. And then you have the distinctive sound 
It isn't just what he says, but how he says it. And the significance of the franchise with which he's connected. The Dodgers are one of the most historically significant franchises in all of American sports, both in Brooklyn and on the West Coast, and Jackie Robinson, and how colorful those Brooklyn Dodger teams were and how beloved they were and the importance of opening up baseball to the West Coast. He spans the era where radio was primary into the long stretch of time now that television has been primary, but there was a period of time when he was a national voice in the 1980s on NBC and did some of the most memorable World Series with terrific calls. And then he stayed around long enough that in the sunset of his career, the technology evolved to where someone in Portland, Oregon or Portland, Maine can eavesdrop on his broadcast, either on television or on radio. So younger people caught up with him or people who remember him from their own youth were able to revisit it by listening to him again. And his broadcasts are simultaneously nostalgic and current. They're about tonight's game. But the way he broadcasts them and the mere sound of his voice, if you're old enough, transports you to every game you ever went to or or cared about when you were a kid. No one will ever be able to duplicate that combination of talent and the circumstances that surrounded and elevated that talent. It will just never happen again. And we're joined on the phone by Bob Costas of NBC Sports. Bob, you worked with Vin Scully for many years over at NBC. Do you have a favorite Scully story? Well, I don't know that it's anything in particular regarding Ben and me. He was always very cordial to me, and I did the pregame and postgame when we had the World Series. And when we had the LCS, which is the way it used to work, we traded off with ABC, and one network had both LCSs and the other had the World Series in alternate years. So in those years, uh, Vin and Joe Garagiola would do the National League Series, and Tony Kubek and I would do the American League Series. So we were colleagues in the sense that we were throwing it to one another, and and we were covering the same game in, in different ways. We were never on the air together. We were never in the booth together. Uh, my single favorite Vin Scully call, I don't know if it's a moment or story, but my favorite call, and there are so many great ones, is the entire ninth inning of of, uh, Sandy Koufax's perfect game in September of 1965. Koufax was such an elegant pitcher that perhaps he, as much as any player, uh, the elegance of watching him pitch was matched to the elegance of the way Vin called a game. And that game was on radio and radio only. And so Vin had to fill in all the shadings and all the detail. And when you think about great calls, usually what we're thinking about is the call of the great catch, the home run, the climactic moment. But part of what makes a sportscaster great, and certainly a huge part of what made Vin Scully great, was his ability to frame and a great moment, a dramatic moment to capture all the little details, the building tension, the anticipation, to capture the feeling around it, not just the payoff, but everything that led up to it. He did that so many times, but I thought he did it at his absolute peak because it was on the radio with with, uh, Koufax's perfect game in 65. Bob, you've been a part of some great World Series games and moments as a broadcaster. Is there one that stands out to you in particular? I was in the Red Sox clubhouse when the ball went through Bill Buckner's legs. But that's a moment, although it exhilarated Met fans, it extended that series from Game 6 to Game 7, which the Mets ultimately won. So that's that's a moment more associated with disappointment and heartbreak 
than it is with exhilaration. So if I had to pick one that I was a part of, I would say it was the Kirk Gibson home run, um, which then also called, and which Jack Buck brilliantly called on the radio as well, the pinch hit home run off Dennis Eckersley in game one in 1988. I was standing in the corner of the Dodger dugout waiting to do a post-game interview, um, and Gibson at the homer. And after he rounded the bases and after he was done high-fiving and celebrating with his teammates, and he was back out on the field along the third baseline, and I interviewed him um, you know, two or three minutes after uh, he hit the home run. Bob, before we let you go, let's talk some football. I know we're only in week three of the NFL season, but what has been the main storyline you're most intrigued with so far? Well, this may not be the most original choice, but the New England Patriots always intrigue me. And as we speak uh, tonight, Thursday night, they're playing Houston with their third-string quarterback. And so far as I know, with Julian Edelman as the backup, he played quarterback in college, and, and they sometimes use him uh, in in passing situations uh, on fake plays or trick plays, but that he's their backup quarterback. So if you manage to go 2-0 with Garoppolo, then he gets hurt. Brady's still suspended. I wouldn't put it past Belichick and, and the Patriots to be 4-0 when Brady comes back. And when he comes back, they play Cleveland. So they could get off to a 5-0 start despite all that adversity. The Patriots are always interesting, and there's always some kind of mystery uh, and intrigue that uh, surrounds them. So I guess that that's one story that's uh, that's grabbed me. And I think you know, when you talk about their perennial rivals, the Broncos, that's also interesting because with Trevor Simeon at quarterback, uh, that defense has been so outstanding the first couple of weeks that they've been able to get off to a 2-0 and start, and Simeon hasn't hurt them any, and in fact, he's done pretty well. Bob, we can't thank you enough for joining us on the show. Thanks so much, and best of luck the rest of the football season. We really appreciate thank it, Bob. You. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Nice talking to you. Bob Costas joining us on Thursday. What a great thrill. On the Asthma Review Show. Probably the coolest interview I've ever done in my entire life. Oh, and, and Bob Costas is just one of, is a legendary broadcaster. I know we talked about uh, Vin Scully with him, which was so great, and we'll talk about Vin right now. But Bob Costas is a legendary broadcaster. And, you know, he's someone that has not been just to some great World Series moments, but some of the great iconic sports moments uh, in the last 30 years. Chances are Bob Costas was there. He's a tremendous broadcaster, and you can just hear him and that that sense of voice, that voice he has. It's an iconic broadcaster voice, and it was such a great thrill to talk to him. He's just so smart. And uh, for those who don't know, I got a chance to work with Bob down uh, down in Rio this summer as part of an internship with NBC. And just being in his presence was just so cool. And for him to be willing to take a couple minutes out of his day. Talk to a couple college kids on a radio show. Really cool. It really means a lot. So that was really cool. So thanks to Bob for joining us. And if you missed the interview, we podcasted it over on our SoundCloud page. to search Asman Budic Show. Search our Twitter pages. It will come right up. But let's touch on Ben Scully before we come back and talk a little bit about the Giants. His last game he called today and at home for the Dodgers. And so cool because the Dodgers won on a walk-off home run. They clinched the NL West. And that's Ben Scully's last call at home. So... The game of baseball will continue to be great, but Vin Scully for 67 years did his job at a level that no broadcaster will ever be able to reach. Even though baseball will continue to go on, the game will miss Vin Scully. Fans will miss Vin Scully. Just a legend of our time. We'll never see anyone do what he did for 67 years. And he's one of the most iconic broadcasters, not just baseball broadcasters, uh, one of the most iconic broadcasters in general in in the country, in the world. And uh, uh, what a great thrill today for the Dodgers. When it, clinching the National League West and uh, doing it um, in the fashion they did and for Vin Scully to 
uh, call that, and for that to be his final home call at Dodger Stadium after all those years. Uh, really, really cool. Something cool, too. Every time the Dodger went up to the plate, they tipped their batter's cap up to Vince Scully, calling the game from up in the booth. Really cool to see. He'll be missed. And A, le- a baseball legend. Just in every sense of the word. He is. Legend. And he's just as legendary as some of the great players that he has gotten a chance to call over the last 67 years. And, they, boy, there were a lot of great ones. And the point that Bob made with us in the interview, that you know Vince Scully called games for players that were born in the 1930s, that played in the 30s, and he's going to call games for players that's breaking in this year or last year, for players that are going to play in the 2030s. That's 100 years he spans in the course of history. Just... It will never be done again. It's a remarkable accomplishment, and the game of baseball, as we've been saying, absolutely miss Vin Scully. And one other point on that interview we did with Bob, Dan, he said there's a good chance the Patriots could be 4-0. This was before they went out on Thursday and took down the Texans. Now they have the Bills at home. They very might well be 4-0 by this time next week. And he spoke about how, you know, I guess crazy it was that the Patriots were down to their third-string quarterback. Well, he got hurt on Thursday. So now who knows what's going to happen. Is Garoppolo going to be able to come back when they take on the Bills? Or is it going to have to be Julian Edelman, like Bob talked about, who was uh, Brissett's backup on Thursday night? Will Julian Edelman have to take snaps as Patriots quarterback? That's a lot of, a lot of things for the New England Patriots yet to be uh, determined. But one thing is for sure, they're 3-0, and and they only have one more game without Tom Brady. 607-274. 1842. It's the Asman and Budic Show on VICRadio.org. Tune in radio, and we are podcasting this show on ICTV.org and on iTunes. When we come back, we're going to talk about the G-Men. They suffered their first loss of the season in excruciating fashion to the Washington Redskins at MetLife Stadium earlier today. We'll touch on the Giants right after this. It's the Asman and Budic Show on until midnight. Back right after these words. The Asman and Budic Show is presented by Wings Over Ithaca and Gus Buster Umbrellas. Back on the Asman and Budic Show. Look at this music. Almost makes me forget that the Jets quarterback threw six picks today. And again, the bed music here on VIC Radio is absolutely brilliant. Ben Beatty rocking, doing his thing as the board op, having a great time. VIC Radio taking you till 12 o'clock and talked about the Jets, had Bob Costas on, and now next thing is the New York Giants, who, Jake, you teased it before, suffered an excruciating 29-27 loss, a game they had in their back pocket, and a game at 0-2, if they were to hold on, they could have put the Redskins to bed at 0-3. The Redskins were not coming back from that, from an 0-3 start to make the playoffs, but the Redskins needed this game, and to their credit, they found a way to beat the Giants today, and the Giants have a typical... New York Giants loss, it seems like, from the last couple of years. Late interceptions from Eli Manning killing them, and that's exactly what happened this afternoon. And the Giants were kind of due for one of those like games they should have won, but they didn't. Like They're always good for a couple well, of those. Last year, they had like six of them. And they were 2-0, and so it's like, when's it going to come? Are they for real? And this was just a bad game by the Giants. I don't want to put too much stock into it. They've been off to a very good start. But at 2-1, and one, they're still in good shape. But the Redskins, they allowed them to save their season. At 0-3, they well, would have been done. that's the thing. You had a divisional opponent, the defending division champions. They were 0-2, coming into MetLife Stadium. The Giants had an opportunity today to put them to bed. To get them off to an 0-3 start, the Giants would have been 3-0 and in the driver's seat of the, of the NFC East. 
And it's, you know, along with obviously the Eagles, who've gotten off to such a great start, they're 3 0. They had a big win today over the Steelers. But the Giants really could have put the could have put the Redskins to bed at 0 3, and they just weren't able to hold on to do it. The two big factors for me in this loss, obviously, one is the turnovers. The Giants had three turnovers today. The Vereen fumble. Not quite eight, but they had three. Yeah, exactly. They only had five less than what the Jets had, <laughs> but they had three turnovers today. Vereen's fumble, not good. Will Ty was the reason why Eli threw one of those interceptions, not running the right route, being on the same page as his starting quarterback. That was a disaster for the Giants late in that one. Ruined a drive that could have maybe given the Giants the lead, put them away for good. And then, of course, the interception by Eli at the end there, just a bad Eli throw. It's all you could really say. Those two interceptions were both in the fourth quarter. It was a difficult loss for the Giants. And the other factor besides the turnovers, this is the Giants' defense the first two weeks that really hasn't given up any big plays. They've really cleaned up their secondary and the disaster that their defense has been the past couple of years. Well, today the Redskins, they scored on a 44-yard touchdown to Deshaun Jackson, and they allowed a 55-yard touchdown to Jamison Crowder. So the big plays that haven't plagued the Giants so far this season came out and hurt them today, and Washington, desperate for a win, found a way to get it done. I thought Kirk Cousins, all things considered, played a pretty clean football game, did a nice job. And the Giants didn't help themselves out. 11 penalties for 127 yards. They were the least penalized team in the NFL through the first two weeks of the season. And penalties really cost them today. They gave uh, the Washington Redskins opportunity after opportunity and and put Kirk Cousins in a position offensively to make those big plays. And you're right, Kirk Cousins did play relatively a clean football game, and it was a big reason why they were able to, to come back and beat the Giants. But if you're the New York Giants, like a lot of losses last season, we didn't see it through the first two weeks this season, you got to be kicking yourself after this one because you had a chance, you had the game, and they just kept... Uh, they just kept the Redskins around too much, enough for them to come back in this game, take control, and win it. And obviously that interception by Eli Manning at the end, very, very costly. Not a good decision by Eli. Now, what hurts if you're a Giant fan is you look at the upcoming schedule. It's not as bad as what the Jets have, but the Giants got to go to Minnesota next week. That's a Monday night game. Going to be a tough place to play, Minnesota at home. And Minnesota, I know they have Sam Bradford, and we all laughed at it at the time, that move to trade a first-round pick. But the Vikings today, you know, props to them. They went on the road in Carolina, and they beat the Carolina Panthers and beat them hard. They and came they back losing. in that one and ended up winning, yeah. pulling away late. I mean, the Vikings are for real so far. And the Vikings That's de- a tough matchup. And, and then the following week, Dan, defense. they have the Packers. So this is not an easy stretch coming up for the Giants. No, and I agree. And for the Vikings, their defense has played so well. Um, today, they were down 10-2, to and... The defense did give up a point through the last four quarter, through the last three quarters of the game, which is very impressive on their part. But you're right, the Giants have a couple of tough games coming up, and you know, like we saw last season, the Giants just have that inability, and it didn't affect them through the first two weeks. But the inability to put games away, it really killed them last year. Cost them legitimately five, six ball games last year, and here today, just kind of, we saw the same traits that the Giants had in their losses from last season: the turnovers, the penalties, you know, certain plays they couldn't connect on towards the end of games, and having a lead and giving it back. Just traits that the Giants uh, had last season, and it cost them a, a numerous amount of games. Today, a very difficult loss for the Giants. But you're right, they are 2-1. and one. They won their first two games, and they're still in, in a pretty good spot. But they got to clean up a lot of the issues they had today, including the penalties. 11 penalties for 127 yards. You're going to lose just about every time if you commit 11 penalties for 127 yards. It was just frustrating if you're a Giants fan. And we mentioned the schedule and what's coming up. But this is a Giants team. They should have won this game today. They had the lead. The defense is playing great. 
it's just a frustrating loss because as you were talking about the penalties, the turnovers late, and despite all that, you only lost by two points. You were right there in this game. Victor Cruz, three catches, 70 yards. I thought Odell Beckham had a very good game against Josh Norman. Finished with 121 receiving yards and had, I think, seven catches. Sterling Shepard, he had another touchdown today. And just ju- this Giants offense, statistically, looks pretty good. But then you throw in the three turnovers, and that's where this game was lost, no doubt about it. I mean, it was just a frustrating game if you're a Giants fan. Not quite eight, you know, eight turnovers like my Jets, but brutal loss for the Giants today. And I know it's only one game, but we know this as Jet fans. You, if you're a football fan listening, you understand the importance of all these games. This is a divisional opponent. You could end their season potentially, setting them to 0-3. Now all of a sudden the Washington Redskins have some life. And that's the thing. And it's not only um, you mentioned a uh, losing to a, a conference opponent. It, Excuse it, me, my voice is just terrible. Yeah, yeah, right now. You, you the cough. Hey, listen, it was a lot to scream about today. It's, it was a lot to lose your voice over today. I'm sports. a little sick, and then I've been trying to drink some tea. The screaming with the Jets obviously didn't help. We're, we're, we're grinding through we're here. We're grinding you know? through. But, the Giants, but, the, but no, seriously, the Giants had an opportunity today, and, and against those divisional opponents, they're such big games, and the Redskins were coming in, limping in at 0-2, and the Giants had a really good opportunity. I really thought they were going to win today. Uh, very disappointing if you're a Giant fan, if you're uh, the New York Giants, just not able to close out this game against a team that you know, gave you fits last season, that won the division last season, and at 1-2, and you know, it's a lot better than being 0-3, and, and the Redskins got a win they desperately need. And it's a, it really a missed opportunity for the Giants. But you don't want to, you know, it, it's not that big of a deal yet. They're 2-1. and one, But you don't want these kinds of games to become a trait like they did last season for the Giants. A, a, a formula for losing. And and that this is really the way they lost today, Jake. You mentioned it. Just kind of that formula, the turnovers, um, some questionable uh, play calling. It's just a lot of things that cost the Giants today, cost them last season in a bunch of games, including the game they played the Jets last season. You're right, and just, uh, you look at this Giants team, and they, they did not play well, but despite the fact that they didn't play well going into that final drive, Eli Manning with a minute and 51 to go. <laughs> Eli Manning, you got it. Uh, my voice is shot, but Eli Manning with a minute and 51 to go, Dan, had a chance to bring him down the field, and a field goal wins it. And that's that, and, and he couldn't get it done. He throws a bad Eli interception. He throws a bad Eli interception, and you have a lot of confidence in Eli Manning at the end of the game. The way he's played thus far, the way the Giants have played thus far, to come down the field and, and win that football game, and that's what I expected him to do, but costly turnover, Giants lose, they're 2-1, and one, and you mentioned the Vikings coming up. You are listening to the Asman and Butik podcast on ICTV.org and on iTunes. Talked to little Jets, talked to little Giants, and really some sad news now to, to jump onto the program. And waking up this morning and hearing the tragic, horrible news about Marlins ace pitcher Jose Fernandez uh, passing away in a really tragic boating accident off the coast of Miami uh, late last night, about 3.30 in the morning. Uh, and boy, did not only the Marlins lose um, their best pitcher, but baseball lost one of the great, young, exciting, exuberant, exhilarating pitchers to watch in the game in Jose Fernandez. I mean, when someone passes away that young, it's sad either way. But this is someone that everyone in baseball knew. He was the face of the Miami Marlins franchise. Him and um, Giancarlo Stanton, of course, down there. The two were very close. Reading Giancarlo's Instagram post today with his his memories of Jose, just so sad. I mean, that... they were the t- and really Jose Fernandez was the cornerstone to what was going to be and looked like was going to be next season, the year after, 
uh, uh, such a dominant pitching staff led by Jose Fernandez and an offense led by you know guys like Azuna, Marcelo Azuna, and Giancarlo Stanton and Derek Dietrich. Um, and a very sad day for the Miami Marlins and all of baseball. And they, you know, baseball did such a great job today of, of mourning the loss of Jose Fernandez. So tragic. The Marlins and Braves canceled their game today. They had to. They there'll could be, not there'll play be more that mourning game. tomorrow when the Mets play the Marlins. Absolutely. The first game the Marlins will play uh, post the loss of Jose Fernandez is against the Mets. He was supposed to pitch tomorrow night against the New York Mets. And uh, just a very sad, emotional day for the game of baseball. And this season, not that we even need to give his numbers, but just to put it in perspective, he was 16-8, and 2.86 ERA, 253 strikeouts. That was a Marlins franchise record. Great pitcher, but it's just so sad. 24 years old. I mean, it's just so sad. His fiance, you feel for his family. His fiance pregnant with uh, with their first child. What would have been their first, what is going to be their first child? Such a sad, such a sad story. And there's really life no, short. That's really what it comes yeah, down life to. Is, life is too short. I and, mean, and this is a guy that had to escape Cuba, tried four or five times before. Which he, is a great story. Which is an unbelievable story <laughs> in of itself. How he got out of Cuba. He saved his own saved his own his mom own from drowning. Life. Yeah. It's it, what a, what a, a crazy story, and for him to pass away in such a tragic accident at 24 years old last night, um, just just heartbreaking. And that news conference that was earlier today with the Marlins and all their players and coaching staff in uniform, so emotional, so emotional. Whether it was Don Mattingly or the president or the president of baseball operations, it was emotional to watch, and just as um, you know, as a human being watching that. Uh, was very emotional, and, and you, you can't help but tear up. And by all accounts, everyone that knew Jose Fernandez said of what great of a guy he was, great teammate, great person. Just sad. <laughs> Excuse me. It's just, it's just sad. You know, you look at this it's guy. Horrible. The pitcher, you know how great he is, but the person, and for that player to be lost, just horrible. And he was really what baseball was all about. Young, exciting, fun player that people were going to get to watch in the next 10, 15 years, and just taken way too soon. And taken way too soon, and you almost uh, look at you know what would have been the career of Jose Fernandez. And what would have been. And only We only saw 73, 74 starts, 2.56 ERA. We bring on Ben Beatty, our board op, huge baseball fan. And it, it was such an emotional day. And we wonder and we sit and wonder what would have been the career of Jose Fernandez. And you never want to say that, but that's the reality of it. And we're not going to, we're never going to see this guy pitch again. We're never going to see what his career would have been. And it looked like it would have been an all time great. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> absolutely. And you guys know um, just by knowing me that I live, eat, and breathe the game of baseball. It's absolutely everything. It's meant everything to me for the past 20 years. And uh, back in 2013, it was, uh, I guess it might have been around late April. It was it was an early, early season game. 2013, Mets were playing the Marlins. It had no significance to the season. The Mets were terrible. The Marlins were terrible. Um, but it was just around the time of peak Matt Harvey mania. When Matt Harvey first came onto the right. scene in 2013, New York was just going nuts. I don't know if the hype was everywhere, if it was just around the city, but everyone was going nuts over Matt Harvey. So I convinced my parent, my mother and my sister, come to the game with me, it'll be a good time. And opposing Harvey was a 21-year-old making a second big league start named Jose Fernandez. And you looked at these guys, and you just watched how these two young 20-year-olds with these dynamic arms just coming out and dominating the scene. It was, it was incredible. You thought, wow, this is the future of baseball right here. This is unbelievable. 
And you saw Jose Fernandez against the Mets a few weeks ago when he struck out 14, slamming on his legs and just screaming in the middle of the field. An incredibly passionate human being, someone who has who had lived through the worst of worst possible situations and had persevered and had made this incredible person of himself. Absolutely. And really just carried himself in this incredible way on the field. I don't know if you guys heard Terry Collins talking about Jose at the 2013 All-Star Game, how he came in and he treated every member of the City Field kitchen staff with so much respect that every time Fernandez would visit, after that, they'd make him special food. Like they loved this guy so much, and he was just so kind. He just he so loved baseball, man. It just it's terrible. Baseball. It's a horrible it's... loss for, for for the Miami Marlins, but the game of baseball, it really is a tragic, tragic loss. And, it's horrible. It's and awful. Y- it's just you know it, it, it almost words can't describe it because it's so unexpected. And you know Arnold Palmer obviously also passed away a little later in the day. Passed away this evening. A little different. He was you know in his eighties. Lived a full life. Jose Fernandez, just 24 years old, had so much baseball and so many great moments ahead of him. It's really a shame. And it I think, really is a shame. And I think what often what's getting overlooked in this situation a lot, Dan, is what Jose Fernandez not only meant to the Marlins on the field, but to the Cuban communities around Miami, you know, to the kids back in Cuba who are trying to get out, trying to make something of themselves. He was he was everything to them. He was, he was, the, was, he was in the perfect franchise for exactly, where he was from. It just exactly. it just it made too much sense, and, and it, it was just so good, so and just so good. And the way he terrible came back with Tommy John, just adjusting changes to his release point, change and really showing some of the best numbers we've seen from a Tommy John returner. You know, coming back and throwing never having an ERA over three in his career, not losing, being the first pitcher in over a hundred years to win his first 17 starts at home. You know, completely dominant of the NL East division. Uh, I believe he went, he passed uh, without registering a loss to the New York Mets, which is huge considering the impact the Mets have had on the league in the past few years. Well, and considering the fact that he's faced him a numerous amount of times. Right. It's not like he faced the team three or four times. They were in the same division. They faced 18 times a year. He's right. faced him roughly five, four or five times over the last couple of years. So, yeah, he's been that good, and it's a real shame that uh, the baseball world um, lost him, and we yeah, won't see him pitch terrible. anymore because he was a joy to watch pitch every fifth day. And I know, you know, going against him, obviously, as a fan, you, you know, you don't want to see him pitch because he's so good, but you appreciate how good he is and the impact he has on the game and the future of the game. Uh, it really is a shame that, you know, we will no longer see that that young 24-year-old excitement, the exciting um, smiles on his face, you know, when he towed the rubber for the Miami Marlins, whether it be at Marlins Park where he was unbeatable or or on the road at City Field, or in Chicago, or wherever the Marlins were, he was always a joy to watch, and he got a crowd came to watch him pitch every time at Marlins Park. That's when they sold out. That's when one of Jose, the only times. They you know, sell I mean, the Marlins don't. Years. They, you know, even in the new ballpark with everything they had going for them the last couple of years, with the new stadium and all that excitement, you know, they still don't draw. Only when Jose Fernandez was pitching, and I think that that speaks volumes to, like Ben just mentioned, not only his impact on the Marlins on the field, but the impact in the Miami community. Mm-hmm. Off the field, and yeah. and as we lose Jose Fernandez, we also lose Arnold Palmer, the king, as they called him, a true humanitarian, someone that was a great ambassador for the golf game, and 
when you look at Arnold Palmer and the impact that he's had on his sport, Jose Fernandez just starting his career could have had an amazing a Hall of Fame-like career, impacted his sport in ways we haven't seen. And then Arnold Palmer, he dies today at age 87. Just a sad day all around in sports. And I know Jake, we'll be back on Jake Chernock. You're a huge golf fan. Arnold Palmer, his legacy, and this... His impact on the sport of golf. How do you even? How do you even analyze? How do you even break it all down? You cannot. You cannot appropriately uh, discuss Arnold Palmer's legacy and, and what he means to the game of golf. He's simply the king, and 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 that's what he was. And you know, there are so many great Arnold Palmer quotes, or so many great Arnold Palmer stories. And this guy was a tremendous golfer. Let's not. Uh, lose that. He was a seven-time major champion. He won 29 PGA, or t- PGA Tour titles. He is considered one of the greats of the game, but what really I think he will be remembered for beyond all that is what he did for the community. This was a guy who won the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2004. He was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor back in 2009. He was a great humanitarian and someone who even back to his playing days, he had a group of fans known as Arnie's uh, Arnie's Army. And that was a group of fans. It was coined back at Augusta in 1960. And it was just a huge group of of Arnold Palmer fans. And really, really Arnold Palmer, one of the most iconic golfers. Um, You talk about Tiger Woods, you talk about some of the guys that are going right now, but Arnold Palmer, you know, as relevant to the younger golf fans and the younger sports fans as he was you know, 40 years ago. And I think that speaks volumes to Arnold Palmer, um, not only the golfer, but the man, like you mentioned, and the humanitarian. And a very tough loss for the game of golf, and really for this country, uh, to lose Arnold Palmer. You know, I was reading a bunch of Arnold Palmer stories before, and um, if you don't know, Arnold Palmer was from a small town um, in Ohio, I believe, in Latrobe. And he worked at this country club. His father worked there. He Arnold Palmer, when he was growing up, held pretty much any position that he could at Latrobe Country Club. And just several weeks ago, I was reading a story. Uh, it was told by yeah by a writer for ESPN, Jason Sobel. And I guess Arnold Palmer had just been at Latrobe Country Club eating lunch in the locker room, as if he's just another one of the guys. And that's what Arnold Palmer has always been for 87 years. You know, despite all the fame and fortune that has come to him, obviously now. He's known for the, the That's drink. That's what I was going to say. I mean, drink, just but... to a lot of people, Arnold Palmer is just a guy that has delicious iced tea. But and it's ta- an unbelievable iced tea. It's great. Oh, it's great. But I'm, we're ta- I'm we're, a big Arnold Palmer but guy. We're talking about a man so much bigger than just a drink so and his impact. Bigger. I mean, you, know, you talk about some of the greatest golfers ever. That's one thing. But, I mean, you say the name Arnold Palmer, and pretty much everyone of every generation knows who you're talking and about. And it's, it's, it's Arnold Palmer, like Tiger Woods, the name is iconic, and it's... Uh, it, it goes hand in hand with the game of golf, and really just you know a, a, a very tough and emotional loss for the sports world today for both Jose Fernandez and obviously Arnold Palmer. You know Arnold Palmer is one has had some truly truly great great quotes. Um, one of them I'm trying to find that I saw it uh, earlier today. I think it was I have a tip that can take five strokes off anyone's golf game. It's called an eraser. That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. You That's know, clever. Like Arnold Palmer is just, he's the king. He always will be the king. And I think today is just a very, 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 very sad day for everybody involved um, with golf. And, and you know, I, I saw Jack Nicholas posted about it. Tiger Woods has posted about it. 
Greg, uh, Roy McIlroy won today at the Tour Championship. He won the FedEx Cup. He won $10 million today. And he was talking about Arnold Palmer after. Uh, no, not after too shabby win. for a Sunday. Win not $10 million. Not too shabby. I'll <laughs> head to Hazel team for the Ryder Cup next week. Very excited about that. But bigger theme here, Arnold Palmer, one of the greats of the game, one of the greatest individuals that not only golf has ever known, but sports. And, you know, I think the world the world is a worse place today than it was yesterday because of two people that we lost today, Jose Fernandez and now Arnold Palmer here tonight. Just, just a very, very sad a, day. Definitely an emotional and rough Sunday for the sports world. Obviously, waking up this morning and hearing the news of, uh, like we talked about, the tragic loss of, of a 24-year-old pitcher with a bright future ahead of him, and then this evening the loss of uh, a golfer that and a man that has done so much uh, for this country and for the game of golf. A uh, very emotional Sunday. Just the celebrity, the celebrity sports deaths. That we've had in 2016 alone. Yeah. Pat Summit, Buddy Ryan. And in rock and Gordie music. Howell. Too. Yeah, Gordie, music just all over. John Saunders, the ESPN broadcaster. Then, of course, the great one, Muhammad Ali. It's just, it's been a very sad year of, of a lot of loss in the sports world, in the entertainment world, in the music world. It's been a rough year. 2016 has been for celebrities and the different deaths that have been going on in their respective fields. It's just Absolutely. a really sad day for Jose Fernandez and his family, and then, of course, Arnold Palmer and his family. Rest in peace, the two outstanding uh, people that have had such impacts on their professions. 